Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Overcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1, and LinkedIn as Luis Plaza. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, rate it, leave any feedback, any comments, any possible topic suggestions for the podcast. So please go ahead, subscribe, follow, rate, give, leave any comments, and of course, you know, always any feedback, any topic suggestions. They are always welcome and appreciated. And besides that, I always like to post pictures of organisms on social media. And I'm also on TikTok, now that comes to mind, as Let's Talk Micro. So I like to post pictures of organisms and to give updates as to when the next episode is coming out. So go ahead and follow. And if you haven't listened to the previous episode, go ahead and do so. I went over three different species of Yersinia. And there are more, but these are the three most commonly encountered the three most commonly encountered in the laboratory, and they're the ones that are considered pathogenic. So I went over Yersinia enterocolitica, Yersinia pseudotuberculosis, and Yersinia pestis. And I've broken down uh, Yersinia enterocolitica, it causes enterocolitis. Yersinia pseudotuberculosis causes infections that are similar to enterocolitica. However, they are less common. And then we have Yersinia pestis which causes the plague, and that can be in three forms, bubonic, pneumonic, and septicemic. Out of those three, the pneumonic is the only form that can be transmitted person to person via respiratory droplets. As far as morphology and biochemicals, so your senia, there are gram-negative rods, and with certain stains, such as gimsa or right stain, they can exhibit bipolar staining which is also called a safety pin appearance. They are oxidase negative. I also went over two types of agar that are used for Yersinia enterocolitica. So one is the CIN agar, in which Yersinia enterocolitica produces bullseye colonies. So that's a term that you will hear around if you are a student, you are sitting for like a board test, such as the ASCP, American Society for Clinical Pathology. If you see in your case study, gram-negative rods exhibiting uh, safety ping appearance. On the onagar, it produces bullseye colonies. You start thinking about Yersinia enterocolitica. So, and then what's bullseye colonies? Well, these are colonies that have clear edges with a red center after 24 to 48 hours incubation at 25 degrees Celsius. And then the other agar that I talked about was Yersinia chromogra, and this one is used to detect pathogenic Yersinia enterocolitica from non-pathogenic ones. Pathogenic Yersinia enterocolitica colonies, they exhibit a mauve color. So definitely in this episode I went over some terms such as safety pin appearance, safety pin appearance, bullseye colonies, so for your students make sure you review those, and with Yersinia some things that are 
peculiar about it that, so as far as Yersinia pestis is the only member of the Enterobacterales that can be transmitted via flea vector, and also with the plague, that with the three forms, the pneumonic plague is the only one that can be transmitted via respiratory droplets. So go ahead and check it out. Um, we definitely, those of you that work in the lab, you know, you rule out your CN enterocolitica. You have, most of us work with CIN agar, and we definitely put it in a 25 degree incubator because it likes to grow better there. So great information, great episode. So go ahead and check it out if you haven't already. Today's episode is about Yersinia pestis. So this organism, as I mentioned before, has caused several pandemics and has killed an enormous amount of people in the history of our planet. As you have learned, the pneumonic plague can be transmitted via aerosols. So the potential of it being used as a bioterror agent is high. It could infect a great number of people, resulting in numerous deaths. So lab personnel, we are trained on how to handle and test samples that have potential bioterror agents. So I am going to briefly touch on this. This material, you know, it's very extensive and, you know, it, it will make a, its own separate episode. So I'm just going to, like I said, I'm going to briefly touch on it. But definitely as we are trained on how to handle these uh, samples, because normally, especially in the lab, we might not, thankfully, you know, we don't, we don't see uh, Yersinia pestis or we don't see Bacillus synthrasis. But what if we receive a sample like that? So we need to know how to properly test for it, how to handle it, how to ship it, how to package it. So we have all these components that we need to be familiar with. So we are trained on how to do it. So let's start first with a term that is LRN. So this stands for Laboratory Response Network. This was established in 1999 by the CDC, Central for Disease Control, in partnership with the Association of Public Health Laboratories and the FBI. The purpose of this was to create a network of laboratories to recognize, test, and identify potential agents of bioterror. So, you know, organisms that can be used in a biological attack infecting large groups of people, such as the plague. It has several tiers. One of them is Sentinel Labs. So that brings the question, what is Sentinel Lab? Well, your Sentinel Labs, you know, they are typically, they are your, you know, most private laboratories and smaller public health labs. So if you work in a hospital lab, that is your Sentinel Lab or a private lab. So those are the ones that make up the Sentinel Labs. A Sentinel Lab, it follows BSL-2. So Sentinel Lab has BSL-2 practices. And what is BSL? This is Biological Safety Level 2. So labs that have BSL-2 practices, they handle moderate risk organisms, you know, such as your regular hospital or private lab. You can work with these organisms like on the bench, but if there's a risk of aerosol or splashing, you need to work in a biological safety cabinet, which is what we know as the hood. And then we have another tier, which is the reference lab. These are public health labs, either state or local. 
and they are able to test for specific agents. So these, they follow BSL-3 practices. If you suspect one of these bioterror agents, you will send it to your reference lab. And I will touch more, more on this process in a bit, but just to keep it all together. So you are a tech working in a hospital lab. So that's your Sentinel lab. And let's say that you go through a series of testing and you are suspecting the Sigersinia pestis, Francisella tularensis. So then you have to send that organism to a reference lab for confirmation. And typically that will be your state lab. So in that point in time, you the Sentinel are calling your state lab, letting them know that you are sending that particular sample. And that's your reference lab, that state lab is. So before I get to what to do, if you suspect your senior pestis, I mentioned before that we train on how to test and detect these agents. I mean, we need to be able to recognize them, especially since they are not part of our daily workup. You know, we deal with E. coli, Klebsiella, you know, non-fermenters, gram-positive cocci on a daily basis. So we are very familiar with these organisms. We know how to report them. We know how to work them. We recognize them on media. We know about susceptibilities. We know what to do with them. But like I mentioned before, we don't see anthrax every day. We don't see Yersinia pestis every day, and thankfully so. So we need to be able to know what to do and what you know how to test for, for them, how to detect them in the lab. So we are trained on it. So this is part of the laboratory response network. Personnel need to have the proper qualification and be trained in handling, testing, and shipping these organisms. We don't see them typically, but twice a year, we perform proficiency testing on these organisms. And those of you that work in the lab, you're familiar with proficiency testing. You get those CAP surveys. So you get a, a sample and then you run it as if, as if you would a patient, right? And then you get a result and you report that. So just like that, twice a year, we get a proficiency survey on these type of organisms. And this is called the LPX. So if you work in micro, you have definitely heard of it. So the LPX, this is the laboratory preparedness exercise. So in here, laboratories, they are sent organisms that exhibit characteristics of bioterrorism agents. And this was a joint effort between the College of American Pathologists, the CDC, and the Association of Public Health Laboratories. So you receive the organisms, and the objective is to test the labs on how to handle them, test the organisms, and follow the proper protocols in shipping them to the reference lab. And these organisms, you know, they just, they just don't drop something. Here you go. Um, tell me what to do with this. You know, they come in with a case study, so scenario, 65-year-old from this place or from that place with a history of this disease or presenting with the complaint of something. So it does give you a little, a little clue, kind of. You know, it helps you. You know, it points you in the right direction. Case studies, you know, they're always very helpful, especially when it comes to this type of work because it guides you. You know, we're not trying to trick you here. We just want to make sure that you follow the proper procedure. So your lab, yourself, 
and others, you know, other people in your lab and out there, everyone is safe. So, and then these organisms, they are not always bioterror agents. For example, you can get something normal, quote unquote, like a hemophilus. So not, not all three are, are bioterror agents. And that's something, you know, keep in mind. You know, I have seen surveys sometimes, you know, you get a Yersinia enterocolitica or you get a regular bacillus. So not all of them are bioterror agents. So how do we get the samples in the lab? Well, you know, they, they come in a swab and you play them as you would a sample. However, with these samples, let it be from the survey or actual patient samples that are suspected of these agents, they need to be worked up and tested under a biological safety cabinet, which is a hood. And then you seal your plates. So especially, you know, with this survey, if you have a patient that you're suspecting something, you will seal it too. But you will seal the plates and you properly incubate it in the correct temperature, which for most organisms is 35 to 37. And keep in mind that your senior grows at 25 degrees as well. And with this type of survey, you typically go ahead and set up multiple tests on, on all your samples. So you can, you know, you can set up as you're setting up your plates, you can set up a CIN plate for all three. You can set up an urea uh, slant for it. That way you can rule that out. And I'll talk a little bit more about urea. So you typically with these, you're setting up multiple tests at once. And that way it makes it easy to rule out organisms or rule them in. So Yersinia pestis is a slow grower, up to 72 hours. Gram stain is gram negative rods. And I mentioned before that with a right or a game stain, it can show bipolar staining, which is called safety pin appearance. Your colonies are great, white but small. It is a non-lactose fermenterum MAC. As far as biochemicals, it is catalase positive, indole, and oxidase negative. And it is also negative for urea. So as you're setting up the samples from this survey, set up a urea slant, and that way you have that in there, and you can rule out your senior pestis if it's positive. And then with urea, this is also different from your senior enterocolitica and pseudotuberculosis. Both of those are positive for urea. And if you're in, if you're in a laboratory, kind of make make sure you bring those tests in. You know, they will definitely make it easier, not only for surveys, but for you know urea slants and tests like that. They have many uses other than bioterror suspected bioterror agents. You can use them for all other organisms, for other organisms. So try to bring them in. You know, I I always I like to talk about an experience. I once found myself working in a lab where there was like no urea, you know, there was no motility, agar. So it makes it challenging, especially when you are trying to rule out organisms like this, it makes it challenging because you have all these tests like urea, motility, but if you don't have them, then your job is difficult. So if you're in a laboratory, consider bringing those tests on board. And like I mentioned, besides bioterror agents, they are useful for other organisms. So the American Society for Microbiology Handbook, it says not to use an automated system to identify them. 
If suspected, the reference lab should be the one performing the identification. Commercial systems can misidentify the organism. So for Yersinia pestis, it can be identified as Yersinia pseudotuberculosis, Shigella, and Salmonella H2S negative. Also, Acinetobacter or Pseudomonas species. So with the survey, you can prepare better because like I said, you can set multiple media at once. But however, in a real case scenario, that culture containing Yersinia pestis can show up with your routine cultures. And the provider, he, might not, he or she might not have a suspicion of it. So think about sources such as blood, sputum, or lymph node aspirin. If you're having a slow-growing gram-negative rod and your source is one of the ones listed above, then you can start thinking about Yersinia pestis. Of course, that is in combination with the biochemicals and growth of media. As far as commercial systems misidentifying it, the ASM handbook says that if you get an idea of Yersinia species or H2S negative salmonella from a blood culture, the possibility of plague should be evaluated. They also say that Shigella from a blood culture is unlikely, and also an Acinetobacter from a community-acquired pneumonia sample. The Clinical Microbiology Procedures Handbook details all this information, so definitely a great resource. If you have a chance to purchase them, please go ahead and do so. So, if you have all this criteria, let it be from a patient or from the survey, which is the one you will most likely have, then you have not been able to rule out your senior pestis. And just to recap it, so you have a slow-growing gram-negative run, you know, taking up to 72 hours, non-lactose fermenter, indole and oxidase negative, urea negative, growing at 25 degrees if you have the stain and you see the safety pin or the bipolar appearance then you have not been able to rule out Yersinia pestis so once you suspect this organism you know at this point call your reference lab and notify them of what you have and that you are sending the sample even if it's a survey you need to call it and notify them Hey, I'm so-and-so from this hospital. I am sending a sample. In this case, if you have a survey, I have a survey. I'm, I'm unable to rule out your senior pestis. I am sending the sample. You document who you spoke to, and you will document that on your culture. When you submit your results, you put that, who you spoke to. So definitely document it, and then you follow the proper procedure for packing and shipping the sample. And for properly packing and shipping samples, you do get trained for that. So typically they send you to a, a class, which is offered by, by the Department of Health. And then you go over this course about they show you, they talk about the organisms. They talk about biochemicals, reactions, you know, about different categories of reagents. What's the proper container that you use to ship them? And you get certified on that. So typically you have you know, a few people in the lab that are trained and then they get to ship the, these organisms. If you are not trained, then you should give it to someone that is trained 
but typically if you are in a smaller lab since you probably be doing the packing and the shipping yourself they will send you to the class and then you obtain a certificate but if you're in a large facility they might have some designated people that are trained for that and you might not get trained on it so it depends on the department needs but it's definitely good information and you should be able to know how to ship this this organisms you know know about the containers the packaging the categories it is definitely great information to know and the department of health i've definitely seen it here in florida you know you get like a binder and it talks about the organisms and it tells you the biochemicals you know what to expect and it tells you how they look at day you know 24 48 and 72 hours with pictures of the media and visuals they are always great because they help you remember stuff better so once the isolate is identified it is recommended to destroy the sample and plates or transfer those plates and sample to an approved select agent entity and this is to be done within seven days of the confirmation of the ID by your reference lab so how do you destroy this you know these plates right so those of you that work in microbiology you know that once you finish your cultures you typically wrap your plates and then you keep them for about seven days depending on on the facility but you keep them for about seven days and then after seven days you discard them in the biohazard bin so with surveys you know sometimes you people even keep them longer but it's telling you here that you need to destroy them after seven days and this is once the the isolate has been properly identified by your reference lab so when you destroy them which is typically what is done instead of sending them to an approved select agent entity what you do is just place them in bleach and that's how you destroy them and in addition to that while you are actively working the organism what we do is you know we get you know we go under the hood we do all the testing under the hood like your biochemicals if you're making a slide you prepare it under the hood and then as you're getting rid of slides or swaps for your biochemicals anything that you're using for your testing what you do is, you know, you get like a little jug and you, you fill it with bleach and you start placing your stuff in there. You know, your loops, any biochemicals, so any slides, that's what you do as you are actively working the organism. And like I said, once the organism has been properly identified by the reference laboratory, then within seven days of that, you place those plates that you have and any remaining sample, you place that on bleach to destroy the organism. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy learning about Yersinia pestis and the LPX survey and all these terms. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. Stay tuned to Let's Talk Micro. We have some great episodes and some great stuff coming your way. Thank you for the support. Continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. As always, you know, like I always like to say, we do great work. So, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, 
continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.